0: So please turn with me to Mark chapter 15, as we continue studying through the book of Mark, Mark chapter 15, we'll be in Mark for a couple of more weeks, and then we'll be studying through the second half of the book of Isaiah, so I encourage you to begin also looking at that book for your own personal study. But before we go to God's word today, let's go Him in prayer and ask for his help with the text. pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us with it, that you would help us to read it and understand it and see it not as just mere information for us to take in and to make a part of our other information. But these are the very words of life. These are the words of a creator to his creation. These are the words of a savior to his people. And so help us, Lord, open our eyes that we might see and open our ears that we might hear our hearts that we might be changed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I prepared for this week's message, I thought of this show that on TV that's called Undercover Boss. I only saw a couple episodes of it. I don't know if it's still on TV or not. But I did watch a few episodes, and the basic idea of this is that this boss of a big company, like a really big company, like one I saw was like Southwest Airlines, like that sort of thing. And they would come in, and they would basically take the place of like average employees, like they would be one of the people that just handles baggage or whatever that is at an airlines, Just to get an idea of how their company kind of worked day to day. So many times... Their costume, like their costume, their work outfit didn't even have to be all that elaborate because the, the employees, the lowest level of the companies, had no idea what the number one boss of the company even looked like. They just didn't even know. It was so far removed from them. And so the boss would do several jobs, and at the end, he would, you know, the whole idea would kind of wrap up real nicely, and he would come away with some better understanding about how his company operated. There was usually this good kind of story all around a good thing. On our text today... And really, throughout all of Mark, really, as we've been studying through it, you kind of have this undercover boss happening, except that Jesus isn't just the boss at all. He's the son of God made flesh, the creator of all things. And we aren't his employees at all. We're his creation. We aren't underlings in any sense, but he is the sovereign of the universe. Our very existence depends on him. And so it's not this ranking kind of system. He is everything. We are nothing. Yet Jesus, when he came, was also fully man, just like us. So in our text, Jesus' experience, he experiences the absolute worst that humanity has to offer in our text today. He will experience pain and humiliation, suffering and death directly. As a result, to whom he gave the very breath of life to. And as we've looked at this theme of justice, we've looked at it as we've studied the Romans, as we've looked at it in this text as well, this will hopefully just bother us a whole lot as we read through here. Today we're going to see the absolute worst injustice of all time, the spotless Lamb of God being crucified. And it's a difficult text. Not for any hard interpretations or difficult portions, but because we come face to face with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in this very, very different way. We often talk about Jesus as we experience Him today, right? As He is right now the sovereign risen Lord at the right hand of the Father. So as we look at Him today, we're going to see Him lower than we could ever imagine Him. Lower than even any of us will experience. Not only because of his physical pain and suffering, but because of the spiritual burden that he's carrying for all of his people as he came to the earth to take their sins. So as we do that and consider the hardship that he endures, we need to look at what it means for us, how we should then look at our sins as well. So as we do that, I want to look at this in this theme of an exchange. And three main points, the thief for a king, a crown for a king, and then lastly, a cross. A king. And so with that, let's look together at the text. Mark chapter 15, we'll read verses 1 through 32. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 1. And as soon as it were as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him. Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered them, or answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many changes they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used, he used to release one of them for, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison, who had committed murder in in the insurrection there was a man called Barabbas and the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them and he answered them saying do you want me to release for you the king of the jews for he had perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them barabbas instead and pilate again said to them Then what shall I do with this man whom you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloth, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloth, and put on and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which he should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So real quick, just a bit of context. Without going into a whole lot of detail. Crucifixion. Was this process used by Rome to punish enemies of the state. It was originally something that they reserved only for their slaves, but later it became something that they used to deter revolts as people revolted against Rome all the time, all throughout their empire. It was basically meant as a way of public humiliation. It was meant to be an absolute spectacle. It was meant to be as painful as possible. It was meant to strike fear into anyone who saw it happening. And there are lots and lots of videos and things and books out there written about the science of crucifixion. Absolutely, there's lots of stuff out there. But that isn't a lot really helpful for us in a worship service. If you're curious, I encourage you to go look at those things. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it because we never want the crucifixion to become for us just a mere curiosity. Some point of argument that we have with a skeptic, you know, about the means of crucifixion or something like that. The cross of Christ is about atonement. And when it becomes anything else, we can easily get sidetracked. Atonement requires an exchange, a payment for damage. And when it, when it came to paying what we owe to God for our sin, no payment could be acceptable other than the sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And So as we look into this passage, we're going to see that kind of exchange as this pervasive theme throughout. And with, with that, let's look at the first point, a thief for a king. So look with me again at verses 1 through 5. And I'll just kind of summarize what's going on here. Because in these verses, the Sanhedrin, remember, they just got through trying Jesus and then beating him. And then they brought him to Pilate. Pilate was the governor of the Jews, or the the, of that province. And Pilate asked him a series of questions. And it's kind of the same accusations that had been brought against him before, right? That, you know, all these accusations and Jesus says nothing other than to affirm the fact that he was indeed... King of the Jews. And so again, Pilate, this Roman governor of the province of Judea, the Sanhedrin had very little authority when it came to sentencing Jesus to death, but they knew that Roman, or the, the Roman government, Pilate, had absolute authority when it came to life and death. Humanly speaking anyway, and so that's why they brought him to Pilate. They wanted Jesus dead. Pilate was the only one who could make that decision legally for them the pilot had misgivings about this whole thing and if you read the other gospels I encourage you to do that matthew and luke and john you get kind of the idea of what Pilate is thinking and there's some misgivings that he has He even has a bad dream concerning jesus he sees that jesus is innocent at least but he's wanting to honor the traditions of the people as well which is kind of sad Rome usually did this when it came to countries that they conquered, and they did the same with the Jews. And that's what we have in this next little section. Look with me, verses 7 through 9. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder and insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? So Pilate asked to was asked to release a prisoner, as was their custom. Pilate was sure they wanted to release Jesus. They have Jesus. They have Barabbas. Barabbas is a murderer and insurrectionist. Jesus was innocent. But if you look at verse 10, Pilate also asked this question because he was sure that these chief priests were just jealous. And they were bringing Jesus in because they just didn't like him, basically. And we know that because, you know, we've read all the way up to this point. We see the relationship that Jesus had with these people. And so their other choice is the one they end up making, this Barabbas. We see in verse 7 that he was guilty of murder. And he had committed this murder in one of these insurrections. There would have been various insurrections at this time in all the provinces of Rome. But as we... The ones in Judea are particularly famous because of just you know everything surrounding Jesus and the Gospels at the time. Usually, someone would rally, rise up against Rome. They would rally a bunch of people together. They would get all of their pitchforks and things together, and then they would go fight a Roman legion, and then they would just get squashed. And then Rome, the ones they didn't kill, they would take prisoner, and then they would execute all the ones that they had gathered up, typically by crucifixion. And so it was pretty common to just see crosses everywhere in the streets in those days. And so Barabbas was heading toward his own crucifixion. Knowing all this, the priests used this information to stir up the crowd. Verse 11. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Think about that for just a minute. Barabbas instead of Jesus. This mob, who was probably already pretty stirred up when it came to Jesus because of the the news of the arrest and all the proceedings that had happened to that, they were probably already pretty stirred up. They were presented with these two options, a murdering insurrectionist, the very Son of God. They chose to free the criminal and to have Jesus crucified. And Pilate, being the spineless man that he was, agreed And decided to have Jesus' scourged, just to have insult added to injury. So understand again what went on here as we look at this. Because I think we just kind of gloss over this so many times. And again we get caught up in what does crucifixion even mean and all this kind of stuff. A criminal was given freedom. And the sinless son of God was given a death sentence. Unless we look at this and get any other ideas at all, brothers and sisters in Christ, you and I are Barabbas. We're the criminals. We're the murderers. We're the insurrectionists. We're the ones that deserve to be there. Yet he took our place. We may not have actually committed the same crimes as Barabbas has, but our sins aren't any less at fault for the reason Jesus had to die in the first place. He went to die for the sins of his people He went to die for our sins. So when we read this, understanding that Jesus stood in our place when he went to the cross, how does that change the way that we view our sin? This is a passage that so many times, and unfortunately in our day where there's films and things like that, we've had Hollywood kind of ruin things for us and showing us what they think these things might have looked like, which is sad giving us an idea of what it must have been like, and a lot of times they're just so overdone and exaggerated to the point of just silliness. And so we need to think about this, instead of just thinking about all the the just how hideous it was and how and how violent it was, put yourself in the shoes of rabbis. The Son of Man was exchanged for you, so that you might have eternal life. That brings me to the second point, crown of thorns for a true crown, verses 16 through 20. Let's look at those again. The soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, twisting together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of a purple cloak and they put on his, put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. So for me, this is one of the most horrific scenes in the entire Bible, if not the most horrific scene for me in the whole Bible. You have what is, you know, Mark says an entire battalion, the whole battalion, which would have been about 600 soldiers. And they have Jesus, an unarmed man, and he is there and they're making a spectacle of him. They brought him in and note up to this time he's been beaten several times. He's been scourged and they bring him in and they clothe him in purple, which would have been a sign of royalty. And they make a crown of thorns for him and they put it on his head and they begin to even pound it onto his head with reeds. And they mock him and they spit on him. I mean, at this point, I'm not even sure how Jesus is physically alive other than to know that he has work before him to do on the cross somehow he is still alive when they are finished they put his own clothes back on him which you can't imagine what couldn't have been much by this point as much as he's undergone and they make him carry his own cross to Golgotha so as I read this you have these Roman soldiers these are the finest soldiers most well-trained most well-equipped army in history up to this point in history and here's an entire battalion mocking an innocent man laughing at him spitting on him and he isn't just any man he is the very king of all kings everything up to this point has pointed to him coming this whole event actually is that everything is about him and they have him in this little area and they're making fun of him i think this is the scene that when i you know i thought of that show that undercover boss Because a lot of times in that show, I don't know if you ever watched it, but in that show, you somehow have, you sometimes have these lower employees that are making jokes at the boss's expense. And it's kind of funny to us because we think, haha, he owns all of this stuff and you're like laughing at him or they call them bad employees and it's, it's this whole tension that's built in reality shows. You know, it's dumb, but you get the idea. It's kind of funny to us. And then that, then they, they reveal themselves as the boss and those employees have to go back and apologize and everybody laughs. But here it's much different. This is the creator of all things. All the way back in Genesis. The one who said let there be light. And it was. And he's being mocked by his creation. The image bearer. The people are being made fun of by the one who made them. The creation not only has Value and dignity because of the creator. But now they turn and they mock their creator as if he has none of those things, as if he has no value, no dignity, as if he's just another man. In fact, probably more so. They're like putting royalty on him in a crown. They're like treating him as if he were some sort of made up king. Jesus, the creator, the very son of God. When you read Isaiah chapter 6, we've been in Isaiah a bunch already this morning. When you read Isaiah chapter 6, he is the one who is seated on the throne, high and lifted up. And the angels around him are shouting, holy, holy, holy. He is the son of man coming in power and dominion and authority over all the nations. And they will all bow to him. He is the king of all kings and here he has this crown that is actually his exchanged for a crown that was made out of some nearby thorn bush that is being beat onto his head and he willingly exchanged it. He gave up the crown that he had. For one that would just, I mean, think about it just for a minute. This crown, this crown of thorns they put on him when they were done with it, they just threw it away. It was just forgotten to history. Understand this, Christians, because it's our sin that he is paying for. He goes all the way back to the garden. And you hear me say this a lot because it's true. What did they believe in the garden? What did Satan tell Eve? If you eat this, you will be like God we wanted that crown for ourselves we wanted it then we want it now when we sin we are basically saying no God my way is better let me wear that crown for a bit you obviously don't know what you're talking about rather than trust in Christ we want to change our own world we complain when we can't we want things our way rather than his sometimes we'll even pretend that The thing that we've chosen for ourselves is his way. That's even worse. We're just straight up mocking him and spitting on him at that point. We deserve the crown of thorns that was given here. But instead he got it. And understand this the great thing about this is because of him, he takes the crown that we deserve, the crown of thorns that you and I deserve. Instead, what do we get? A crown of life. We are called joint heirs with Jesus. Jesus is the very son of God. And not only that, he has this inheritance that is vast and incredible. And we, you and I, because of Christ, are called joint heirs with Jesus. And it only works because Jesus was humble to death. Because he went willingly to the cross. He gave all that he had so that you and I could share in all the things that are his. And so as we look at our sin this morning, think about this. And as we read this story, how does it change the way we look at our sin? The crown of thorns that was yours to wear, he wore it instead, and you have a crown of life. That brings me to the last point, throne, for cross. As we read through these 32 verses, there's a very pervasive theme going throughout, right? And you can see it throughout. There's verses, verse 2, 9, 12, 18, 26, 32, all those verses have this same thing in them. And I probably even missed one. It's this idea that Jesus is the king of the Jews. Mark wants us to know what's at stake here. This is the king of the Jews. And who knows that it's the king of the Jews? Everyone there knows. It's not even a secret. Pilate says, what about this one that you call the king of the Jews? It's not as if Jesus shrinks back from that claim at all. When Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, it is as you say. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of all kings. Everyone's included. He's healed the sick. He's raised the dead. He's driven out demons. He fed the 5,000. We see all these stories. He walked on water. Most of these things he did with people standing around. It wasn't as if he did his ministry in secret. It wasn't as if he committed these, he done these miracles and then, hey, don't tell anybody. Or no one saw this, good, no one sees that I'm actually powerful. No, everyone saw him do these miracles. Everyone saw that he rose people from the dead. They knew that he was the king of the Jews. This crucifixion isn't about them thinking that he is a false messiah and he has to die. This is about submission to God. God sent his only son. And what did they want? They wanted him dead. Remember the parable of the tenants back in Mark chapter 12. When you have this this uh, this, this wine owner, this uh, vineyard owner, and he has some tenants take over. Take it over. And they kill everybody that the the owner comes to see. And the owner says, well, maybe if I send my son, they'll respect him. And what do those tenants say? Come, let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. They weren't denying that it was his son. They wanted the inheritance. So this isn't some new sin that people are committing here. It's not as if, no, this Jesus is a false messiah. We'll wait for the next one. They knew good and well who he was. This is a new sin that they're committing. It goes all the way back to the garden. They thought that if they did the thing, they could be just like God. So rather than hide the fact that Jesus is the King of the Jews, they put it front and center. And if you look at that last little section, look with me at 25 through 32. It was the third hour when they crucified Him. And the inscription... Of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. So this would have just been plastered above the cross. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And notice how, what they're saying to him. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, uh-huh, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him, saying to one another, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Let him do the thing that he said he was going to do that we'll finally believe him." You know, we've read this so many times, I think, unfortunately, that it doesn't bother us. It wasn't a lie. It wasn't that they thought Jesus was lying. They were killing him for it. They knew good and well who he was. Paul had the right of it. You've heard me quote this a thousand times. You'll probably hear it a thousand more. In Romans 1, what does he say? Although they knew God, they neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. They exchanged the truth about God. A lie. So understand, while they know who Jesus is, they still look at him and they say, He cannot save himself. Come down from the cross that we might see and believe. Jesus knew better than this. In Luke, Jesus says, They don't believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And that's exactly what happens. Just keep reading, sorry to spoil it for you. Jesus does rise from the dead, and guess what they still don't do? They still don't believe. They try to cover it up. Were it not for the work of the spirits in our the spirit in our lives, brothers and sisters in Christ, we'd still be like those wagging their heads under the cross, mocking him, and his supposed inability to save. We'll see more of this in our text next week in particular. But it's not as if we finally came to our senses and thought, oh, you know, I'll just believe in God now. I'll just, I'll finally come around to this sort of thing. Remember all the miracles that Jesus did. Remember what he said about himself. And they hung him on the cross anyway. Remember, were it not for Jesus that we'd be just like those criminals who were crucified next to him. What did they do? They reviled him while they were hanging there next to him as if they were better than him. They were, they were crucified. They were also criminals. They weren't any better than he was. Because of the work of Christ. The punishment that was due to us. That was, was paid for. On that day. And it's not just about the fact. That he stood in our place. Barabbas was a guilty man. Though Jesus was exchanged. For him. It wasn't just about that. Not only. Were his sins covered, and you and I are sins covered, but we are also given the very righteousness of Christ. Ours is taken away, our sin is removed as far as the east is from the west, and we are given the righteousness of Christ. When Jesus died, now when the Father sees us, it is just as if we had never sinned. He removed our sins, past, present, and future, and He gave us a righteousness that covers all of it. So as we conclude, as we consider this crucifixion of Christ, it should change us. It should change the way that we see sin. It should change the severity, the way that we see the severity of our own sin, of course. And it should also show us the great price that was paid that we might have eternal life. And so to that end... Rest in that. You are secure in Christ because of what he did. But also. Go out. And tell others about what they too. Might have. That they too might have that same freedom. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus as we. Come to you we pray that you would. Help us. Because so many times we at least I know I do I come to this passage and I'm enamored with the things that have nothing to do with the atonement, that have to do with the the science and the, the history and all the things that are here. But what was at stake was my sins, eternal life for me, for, for all of your people. And so Lord help us to see that you stood in our place. We were the criminal. And because of what you did, we have eternal life. It's in your only name we pray. Amen.